You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. Um, for those of you that continue to give, offering is in uh, the foyer right at the little offering box on the way out. Thank you so much for making ministry happen here and all over the world. Today's sermon this morning is called The House of Rest, and, and that's the destination. We're going to get there, but I want to start out with a question, and it's a question that everyone in the world has asked at some point in their lives. It's, it's a universal question, and that is the question, who am I? Who am I? And while it is a universal question, there are hundreds of different ways to try to begin to answer it, many of which can be good, but many of which are awful, right? Because we've all tried to answer that question at some point or another. Many times we label it with our professions, right? Who am I? Well, I'm a pastor. Well, who am I? Well, I'm a concrete driver. Well, who am I? I'm uh, I'm a fisherman. Or who am I? Uh, I'm a, I'm a student. Who am I? I, I you name it in. You fill it. Because you have filled it in at some point or another. Because we all try to answer that question. And unfortunately, many of us put in labels that we wouldn't even speak out loud if it was given. Right? Who am I? I'm such a loser. Who am I? I'm such a fool. Who am I? I'm not enough. We all answer that question and try to answer it. And now we live in a day and age where the way in which that question is attempted to be answered is different than any other generation before. You need to know this for those of you that are living in the 21st century. And you you probably already do know this. I haven't talked to, I didn't ask this question of Robin before. I told her I got a question for you. But Robin has been working with teenagers now for over 20 years. Hey, if there's a line of when you're looking at the teenage mindset as they try to answer this question, do you think it is easier for them to answer this question than it was 20 years ago or harder for them to answer this question as it was 20 years ago? Much harder. harder. And I can ask that question of her with much confidence because all the data suggests that. All of it. You see, the the generation that we live in now, and we're going to get to it in a second, it's called iGen. Um, There's a great book about it. If you work with anyone between the age of 13 or 24, I I really highly suggest picking up the book by Gene Twang, which is called iGen, um, that really dives into what makes this generation different than the generations that have come before. Um, And I think this, this label for that generation is so apt for two reasons. Uh, The first one, and and it's the one that she touches on specifically in her book, is this is the first generation that has grown up with a screen attached to them or in front of them at all times. Last 15 years, and that has drastically impacted the way of both brain development, social development, and just development as an adult in the way that they answer these questions. Um, And she really details those uh, social changes in her book. Um, it's made a huge difference in peer-to-peer interaction. Um, if, think about it. If you're my age 
or, or older, right? When we were young and we wanted to hang out with friends, we'd have to like determine beforehand where we wanted to hang out and where we'd wanted to meet. Then we'd have to get in a car. Then we'd have to go there and we'd hope that our friend is there at the predetermined time. And if we were doing something illegal, we would be hoped that we wouldn't get caught, right? Like there's a risk adverseness that existed within that generation. Nowadays, what happens with peer-to-peer interactions is it can happen in a moment. You can have a group of 12 friends that are all in the same app. You can determine, hey, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna meet up or, they can just all meet up in the privacy of their own room as they are on the same screen with one another and spend hours together right there. And if you want to do something illegal, right, like stream a, 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 some sort of illegal movie, you can do it from the privacy of your own home. And that's changed the way that we, we interact with one another. And this is great impact compared to previous generations. And it's greatly impacted the way that they begin to try to answer the question, who am I? Which ties into, I think, the second reason why the title iGen is so important. And that is as they try to answer this question, it is attempted to be answered from a different direction. I'm gonna get into that in a second, okay? And this started with um, Gen Xers, and it has now bore fr- borne fruit within the iGen generation, those between 13 and 24. And if you're my age or younger, we don't even question the way we try to answer this question, and we don't critique it, and we don't realize it's actually the minority position on the planet. And this is what I mean. There's two ways I'm oversimplifying this, so any social psychologist in the room I know is gonna yell at me afterwards. I'm oversimplifying this. But there's two ways that this question is answered by everyone in the world, and that is from an outside-in or from an inside-out level. Let me explain the first. It's probably uh, more simple than you are led to believe or or as I'm mumbling over this morning. Um, I had a dear friend in high school whose parents had immigrated here from India, right? And if you were to ask her, who are you, her response would have been, I'm Indian. She wore Indian garb. She was part of the math club at school. Why? Because that's what Indians do. That's not my words, that's hers, right? She was part of the band at school. Why? Because that's what Indians do. When I asked her what is her future endeavors that she want to partake of, well, she's going to go to college and potentially start her own business because that's what Indians do. And who is she going to marry? An Indian, so they can have more Indian babies. Do you get the idea? For her, her identity, the question of who am I, was answered from the outside in. From the outside in. And Americans, we at least need to be aware that this is still the majority approach to how people answer the question all over the world of who am I. You ask any Italian, like from the peninsula, not from Long Island, that's a whole different scenario, right? But you ask any Italian, who are you? They're going to say, well, I'm Italian, right? You ask any West African, any Russian, any South American who they are, and they are greatly tied, that question is greatly tied to the horizontal influences that exist around them. But this is not 
the case in modern America. This is not the case in much of the modern West. The social imaginary of modern America is built around the idea of the self-made man or the self-made woman. You are who you want to be. That's what every Disney film has said for the last 30 and 40 years, right? You are what you feel. You are what your dreams are. You are what your experiences are. And that's how they begin to answer the question of who am I? If there's one experience that unites iGen compared to many of their ancestors' generations, it's the determination to define themselves. I'll say that again because it's very important if you want to understand your grandkids or your kids or anyone that's my age or younger. If there is one experience that unites iGen compared to many of their ancestors' generations, it is the determination to define themselves. Hence why the little I, the title to I generation, I think is so fitting. Because they're one of the first generations that instead of seeing themselves as part of a larger narrative a larger community, they are much more likely to see themselves as individuals. And that is one of the key reasons why we've seen a drastic uptick in suicide, in self-harm, in self-deceit, and entitlement within a generation. And all those things are now statistically verifiable. We know that from the data. If previous generations had an outside-in approach to answering the question of who am I, most Americans today, not just iGen, have grown up in a culture that questions who am I or tries to answer who am I from the inside out. Do you see the difference? And again, it's not just iGen. They are the fruit of the last 50 years of cultural change. And the text of scripture that we're going to be looking at today helps us answer the fundamental question of who am I? Not from an external horizontal level, from an outside-in perspective, nor from an inside-out perspective of how do I feel at this very moment, this internal position. But instead, Scripture tells us that both those positions on identity are to be cast aside, and what should inform the question of who am I should be primarily influenced by a vertical dimension, that we are a created being made in the image of a holy God. And because we are created being made in the image of a holy God, he gets to define us. So the outline of the text today is as follows. Who are we? We're going to see that in verse 1. Who is Jesus? We're going to see that in verses 1 and 2. And the house that Jesus built, we're going to see in verses 2 through 6. So after that long and overly winded uh, opening to the passage, please stand with me as we look at the text of Scripture this morning. We're going to be Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore... Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father God, as we begin to reevaluate and answer the question of who are we, I pray that we will be honest about the false idols that we've put in our place to best try to answer the question. And I pray that we would look to our creator God in the midst of answering one of life's most important questions, for without your influence, our identity is in vain, and our identity is an idol set up to itself. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Who are we? Now, this is not the only place in the Bible that addresses the question of identity, but this is a good place to be reminded of who are we. Uh, the first thing that we, we are listed of in this verse is that we're holy brothers and sisters. Now, you're going to find, I, I feel like I have to touch on this because um, so much of the text only uses the term brothers, so I'm going to deal with that here. Why does the text use the term brothers and not brothers and sisters within the text? Is it being, um, oh, what's the term? Is it being uh, gender exclusive to where uh, the writer here is only speaking to men? The, the broad answer is absolutely not. Um, the Greek word that's used here is adelphos, which while masculine in structure does not ne necessitate a masculine definition. While it's certainly true that adelphos in scripture can be used to describe two brothers, it's used that way to describe Simon and Andrew in the book of Luke, it also refers to sibling groups. We see that within the text of scripture too. This is hard because we don't have this in English. If you've ever taken Spanish, I failed Spanish twice, but um, if you've ever taken Spanish, you might know this from Spanish class, right? That the word hermano, while it means brother, when you add it in the plural, hermanos can mean both brothers, but can also mean sibling groupings. It's similar very to Greek. So while there are many who want to read offense into scripture here when it leaves out sisters, it is not the case that this book neglects women. The translators are attempting to stay close to the original translation, which means they use the masculine article of the word and not the masculine definition of the word, okay? So I want to get that out of the way because we're going to see brothers all over the course of this book. But what is much more important than the Greek nuances within the text is the context. And the context of brothers and sisters is simple and it's profound. When we are born again, we are born into a new family, the church. Think about it. God, in his providence, could have used a multitude of descriptors to describe God's people, right? He could have just said crowds, kept it normal like he did when he was describing the 5,000 people that he fed on the side of the mountain. He could have used a military term, right? He could have called us a unit or a legion or anything like that. But instead, God, in his providence, decides over and over again to use familial and bodily language to describe his church. Now, granted, 
Some of us have really bad relationships with our brothers and sisters. And so you hear familial language within scripture and you're much more likely to use familial language in association with a curse word than you would an actual word of affection. But it must remind us that we are to strive towards family unity as a church. The church should be the family we have all desired. The church should function as the family we all wished for. This is one of those main reasons when you look at the book of Acts, when you look at all the letters of the epistles, that there's such, and the gospels, especially Luke, that there's such a heavy emphasis on the church's care for widows and orphans. Why? Because even though there is a people group that many sit at home alone at night, we are to come around them as widows to care for them as we would our own family. So they are reminded that they have a family that cares for them. It's the same way with orphans. There are many people without a mother, without a father, or without both. And we are called as a church to come alongside them and be spiritual mothers and fathers to them where it is lacking to care for them like our own. The familial love that ought to exist in our natural families is to be extended to our church family. This love should be the defining picture of our identity. This love should be a defining picture of our identity because who are we? We reflect love as Christ is love. That's who we are. We are to reflect love as Christ is love. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Galatians 5, 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only to not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for what? One another and for all as we do for you. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 2 Thessalonians one three, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love for every one of you for one another is increasing. First John three eleven, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Beloved, first John four seven, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It's all over the text of Scripture. I had to limit the number of verses I put on the screen for time's sake. You can't miss it. The love of God in regards to our family unit as a church is all over. When people of Hicksville ask you, what church do you attend? What does your heart do, right? Does your heart immediately leap for joy? Not because you have a sweet, cool, young pastor, okay? Maybe cool is not the term I would use, okay? But when I look in the mirror, that's the one I use, okay? 
Not because you have a sweet, cool young pastor. Not because you have great worship leaders that lead you in worship. But is your heart's response joy because you love the people around you like your own family? Is your heart's response when people ask you about your church to go, I love those people. If it isn't, my prayer is that it would be eventually. My prayer is that that's what we're striving to, is that your heart leaps not because of who's on stage or who's singing, but because you love one another. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago in my sermon, and I'll, I'll respond it again. The heart's response of, I love those people, will not happen passively. It won't. We have to actively pursue one another in love. We have to actively pursue our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. May that be our heart song when we think of our church. The other adjective that's present when in holy brothers and sisters that I want us to not miss is the adjective within the section, right? Yes, there's the presence of family there, and we can't miss that, but it's a certain type of family, right? It's a holy family. And while the author of the text uses this language to describe us, that's not the most profound part. The most profound part is that the God of the universe uses this language to describe you. Look, I think the majority of us, when we answer the question from the inside out of who am I, probably don't put the descriptor of holy. We don't define ourselves as holy. Good news, church. The definition of who we are is not primarily determined from the inside out, but is determined by a creator God who has given us his righteousness so that we can begin to see ourselves the way that God sees us. And this is wonderful. This is very important. Think about this. If you are in Christ, God sees you not primarily as a sinner in rebellion against him, but as a son or daughter made new by the sacrifice of Christ. That's the primary way the God of the universe sees you. Now, my guess is if you're like me, there are most days where you look in the mirror and you just see yourself as a screw-up. I failed again, Lord. This is who I am. And I'll say things like, well, I'm only human. But if you remember from last week's sermon, right? When we become more and more made in the image of Christ, to be fully human, to be truly human, is actually to be more like Jesus. Dr. Michael Kruger says something profound in his commentary. He says this, and I think it's so true. If you identify yourself as holy, then you see sin, then you see sin as something that is entirely against who you are. Then you begin to see sin as something entirely against who you are. One of the main reasons I'm convinced that we're so constantly tempted by sin 
is that we have what Paul David Tripp terms as identity amnesia. We forget who we are. We actually forget that we're holy. And then we begin to see sin as something that's a part of us and not something that is actually opposed to the very person you are. Here's a question. Church, are you more likely to answer the question, who am I, based on your sin or based on Christ's righteousness given to you? How are you more likely to answer that question? Let's continue. You who share in a heavenly calling. Now, if you remember my illustration with my Indian friend earlier in the sermon, her identity was coupled with her cultural experience, her, her ethnic nationality, right? For the Christian, your identity is coupled with your heavenly nationality. For your home is in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. And what is heaven? Heaven is where God dwells. That is your citizenship. And it is very much part of your identity now. Now, now, hear this. That doesn't mean that we lose our ethnic nationality when we get to heaven. It's very clear from Scripture that every tongue, tribe, and nation will sing glory to God in the book of Revelation. But we don't, we don't become less Indian. We don't become less Irish. We don't become less Italian or African when we get to heaven. But we are all under a larger banner, a more, a more apt banner, And that creates unity where there was division on earth. That's why I can lock arms, right, with my African, my Asian, my Indian, even my English brothers, which is hard because I'm an Irishman, right? And I can call them brothers and sisters because there is a very real sense that I have more in common with them if they are in Christ than the people that might look like me think like me and speak like me that aren't because we're all under the banner of our savior do you primarily see your identity as a citizen of heaven look i love america okay i love the constitution i actually think it's like one of the best documents ever written in mankind if you've been in my office There are tons of dead presidents' heads all around the room. I love America. But the Constitution won't be governing us in heaven. Shocking. Do you put more stock in that than the very words of God that will govern you in heaven? And lastly, in terms of personal identity, this is what it says within verse 1. It says, consider Jesus. Now, now, honestly, I love the NIV's translation of this even more. The NIV translates it as look to Jesus. Because when our eyes are cast upon the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, when we see the way he loves, when we see ourselves the way he sees us, then the answer to our question of who am I, the answer to our question, who am I, is met by the great I am. And he's pleased with you. He sees you as holy and righteousness. And even better, he calls you into a grander adventure for life than we could have ever imagined. The purposes that we're given in this life as we run this race under the banner of King Jesus are better than anything that this world has to offer. 
But when we look to Jesus, to see, to Jesus, who do we see? We have to ask that question. When we look to Jesus, when we consider Jesus, who is Jesus? Well, the verse continues, and it actually answers that for us. Who is Jesus? This is verses 1 and 2. I'll put it up on the screen real quick. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, look to Jesus, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. The, the verse identifies Jesus by two titles. The first one is apostle. Now, when we see the word apostle, we immediately think of the men that Jesus surrounded himself with, um, who Jesus sent into the world to preach the good news. Remember this from Mark three fourteen, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they would be with him and he might send them out to preach. That's the definition of an apostle, someone who is sent. But Christ himself was an apostle. Well, who sent Christ? The Father. John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now notice the direction of the sending. The title of apostles is both communitive and communal. God the Father sends Jesus to us. So if here's God the Father over here, he sends the Son to seek us out here on earth. That's what makes him an apostle. Well, the next definition is actually the high priest. Well, what's the function of the high priest, right? The role of the high priest is to represent humanity to God. So Jesus actually goes both ways. If you remember from last week when we were in Hebrews 2, therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters, that's us, in every respect, so that he, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus uniquely is both apostle sent by God to us and high priest who offers up representation of us to our heavenly father in heaven. He's the only one that can do both things. He's the only one that goes both ways. And it's through him that we have a bridge to God. It's beautiful. Jesus alone is the only one that's both human and divine. Jesus is the person in the gap between us and God. And now in the text, we have this comparison game that's suddenly thrown in here between Jesus and Moses. Well, how does this fit in? Well, let's read the whole thing again so you can see this comparison game between him, him and Moses. He was 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as a builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. For now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house because as a son, over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to the confidence and our boasting and hope. Hear this. Jesus is greater than Moses. 
Now, you got to remember this, right? That's not a big deal for us as Christians. We've lived under this banner if you've been under the church for any amount of time. But to the original Jewish audience, this was a shocking statement, right? Because Moses is like the man. Like, look, if there was a line of Jewish prophet trading cards, Moses is the Babe Ruth. Moses is the number one addition that you want to have when you open the profit trading card pack. Look, Michael Jordan, best basketball player ever. Tom Brady, best quarterback ever. Don't argue with me on that. Okay. Michael Phelps, right? Michael Phelps, best swimmer ever. Abe Lincoln, best president ever. Moses, best prophet ever. No one argues with this. Moses is the man. You don't mess with Moses. You don't compare anybody to Moses if you're a Jew. But that's what's happening here. Jesus is being compared to Moses. Because Jesus is counted as worthy of more glory than Moses. Look, think of this analogy, okay? You go to a beautiful mansion. You get, to, you get to interpret it, okay? It's a beautiful mansion. It's an estate outside of town. You roll up in your little beater of a car. You pull up to the front door. You go up to knock on it. It's got one of those cool knockers because the door is like, right, 30 feet tall or something. Huge, awesome estate. It's got one of those knockers. You knock on it. There's a star of David and the people, right? And, and the door opens, right? And there's Moses. It's the guy. This, this, is Mo, this is the guy who talked to God on the mountain. He's that guy, right? He's top five guy we all want to meet in heaven, right? He's always on our top five list if you're a Christian. He's the guy that led the people of Israel out of bondage and slavery. He's the guy that interceded for the lack of faith for those people over and over and over and over again. That's the stupid thing and stupid thing and stupid. He, he's the guy. And you're sitting there outside the house like it's Moses. And you don't know whether to shake his hand or you kind of want to go in for a hug, but you don't know if that's like too much too soon. And so he invites you into the house and you're like, okay, I'm going to go into the house. And he's like, you should take off your shoes. It's holy ground, right? And you're like, oh, like the bush. And he's like, yeah, we got two of those out back in the garden, right? Always on fire so you can see the flames all, all, all night and day. And then you realize something about Moses. While he's wearing, like, sweet clothing, right, fine linen, it's, it's servant clothes. And, and like the prophets of old, they all pointed to something greater. Look, we didn't, we didn't make our way in our beater car to a grand estate to see the help at the estate. We, we came to see the king. And Moses tells him he's right down the hall. We want, we're there to meet the son. Yes, Moses was in charge of the care for God's people. Likewise, Jesus in char- is in charge for the care of God's people. He's actually the one who sent Moses. Think about that. Who sent Moses? Jesus. Jesus is the chief builder. But what or whom has Jesus built? You see, even though the author of Hebrews has taken us on this journey to remind us of the grandeur of Moses and the grandeur of God in his analogy of a house, he circles back to the first question we had to open up the sermon, which is, who are we? And in verse 6, he reminds us, we are his house. 
if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The house that God is building is a family of believers united in Christ, rooted in a citizenship in heaven. We see this not just in Hebrews, 1 Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, the living stones, are being built upon the spiritual house. We see this in Ephesians 2, 19. It's the verse hanging outside in the foyer. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the what? cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's a profound idea. In the church, Christ dwells. In the church, Christ Christ dwells. Now, like today, like in now, It's not something that happens like, oh, we're dead now, we're in heaven, now we get to be the house that God built, right? No, today. Kingdom of God expands, we're being built upon the house of the Lord now. Look, in in an age that is much more concerned about who we are as individuals, the Lord seems drastically more concerned about who we are as a family. Drastically. That means we get to sharpen one another. We get to confess sins to one another. We strive for one another. We forgive one another, and we love one another. Look, I know in an age of hyper-individualism, we might be tempted to think, you know, I don't need a church. I don't need a church. I'll just show up when I feel like it. I'll just do my thing most of the time. And if I can squeeze it in, then I'll think about the people of God. I might hop around, you know, do a little church shopping which is a very 21st century concept, right? Yay, consumerism. See what tickles my fancy as I shop churches? And when someone makes me mad at that church, well, I'll just hop down the road to the next one. Aisle, 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 my, my, my. That may be the spirit of the age, but that spirit is found nowhere within the text of Scripture and is nowhere described as the Spirit of God. He desires for you to commit to a body of believers. For that is the main way he identifies you. In community. In unity. Horizontally with one another and vertical with himself. We are called, think about it, we're called the house of the Lord. You don't come to the house of the Lord on Sunday. You are the house of the Lord on Sunday and every other day of the week. You're the temple. We're called the house of the Lord. A house, oh, a house that will one day be a house of rest. A house of peace. When death is no more, when every tear is wiped away, when God's people are gathered to him as one body, as one house, built upon the cornerstone. Bow your heads with me.